Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Twenty-five years ago, cresting floodwaters were making a bad situation worse here as the great flood of 93 was at its peak. The Mississippi and Missouri rivers were out of control. In all, it was a five-month calamity, killing 50, causing some $15 billion in damage and inundating about 30,000 square miles. We'd like to hear your memories. Give us a call at 382-8255. Joining me in studio with their memories are Bill Greenblatt, staff photographer with UPI, Mary Leonard is a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. In 93, she was with the Post-Dispatch, editing flood-related copy. Paul Shankman, owner of Paul Shankman Productions, is a former reporter for KTVI. Thank you all so much for being with us. 25 years, wow. <laughs> Doesn't time fly. Bill, let me start with you, and I'll ask the same question of all of you. What's your most vivid memory of that uh, summer? Well, probably the propane tank situation down in South St. Louis, where... Um, the tanks were actually bubbling, leaking, and uh, a great uh, area of South St. Louis was evacuated for a long time. I remember hearing as well that if those things had, had gone, had exploded, it would have wiped out DuPo. Yeah, it would have, uh, would have caused a lot of problems. So the fire chief at the time, Niels Fatanix, decided to uh, evacuate uh, I forgot exactly how many square miles it was, but it was, uh, I mean, people had to leave Immediately. They left birds, they left dogs, cats, and they had to leave immediately. For, a, a, a lightning bolt could have yeah. struck in that vicinity. It sure. would have blown. But I remember flying over it every day to take pictures of that. At a um, high altitude, I hope. Yeah. And uh, so that was one of the things I did every day is I had to fly every day over that to see what the condition was of the tanks. Yeah. yeah take that, pictures. That was quite an episode. Paul Shankman, your recollections. Well, you know, the the thing that came to mind first when I started thinking back on this that I had forgotten about was how hot it was. Mm. You know, usually when we're covering floods, we think about it as being sort of a springtime event, maybe mm. in the fall. But it was really, really hot that summer, and people were just falling out, doing all those sandbags and everything. The other memory I have is actually a happy one, uh, or at least a happier story, which was the uh, National Guard couple that got married down in the uh, church in Festus. I think it was the, the Baptist church down there. Uh, and uh, we covered that. It was on a weekend, and they had uh, they knew each other before, but they had been on duty, as I recall, both you know at the same time National Guard uh, uh, in that area, and just decided to go ahead and get married at the church. I think I don't remember if they left by boat. It's been so long, uh, but I know it was still flooding down there. <laughs> it has been a long time ago, and some of those memories are a little bit dusty, if you will, but a lot of them are still very vivid. How about yours, Mary Lander? Standing on the steps at the Gateway Arch, looking at the river flowing by, and for anybody who doesn't or can't remember or was too young um, to recall or wasn't born yet, I would suggest go to the Gateway Arch and find the plaques on the stairs, on the grand staircase, and those plaques on either side of the steps will designate how high the river was, and it was like halfway up the staircase at the arch. And Mr. Greenblatt there has a wonderful photo that I think we're using in our web story showing people on the arch steps looking at the water. It's just almost impossible to imagine that the river could be that high. We solicited comment uh, from our listeners on uh, on Twitter and also on Facebook asking for their recollections, and I'm reminded of uh, 
a, a tweet that Max sent is saying, I worked downtown one day during the floods. I was walking along Market Street toward the arch and noticed that the river boats, the ones you normally could not see unless you walked to the top of the hill above the river, were now at eye level. The Mississippi was that high. Well, that's, that was the flood where the boat broke loose, wasn't it, and hit yes, the, yeah, the bridge? Street bridge. Yeah. yeah, no question about it. Bill, in terms of photographing something like this, this event was so enormous. Uh, it must have been difficult for you. I mean, you could just point your camera anywhere and you get plenty of water, but to get a perspective on your various shots, that must have been kind of tough. Yeah, it was really hard because uh, you didn't know what the big story of the day was. And, uh, you know, I listened to the radio, watch TV, and see who was rounding up cattle one day or... Um, evacuating somewhere else another day, um, including Valmire uh, was there when that happened, and um, just whatever the biggest thing was, the Monarch Levy. Yeah, Monarch Levy was uh, was 25 years ago to this day. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, NPR came into uh, our area, needless to say, to cover this monumental event, and uh, Kathy Lohr was the reporter at the time, and she did, uh, this is a, a an excerpt from a piece she did on, on that event, the Monarch Levy. Highway 40, which crosses the Missouri River, is one of the main access roads into the city from the west. One of the first levee breaks over the weekend sent the river rushing across the highway, closing the road and bridge. Early this morning, that left just one way over the Missouri, and that turned into a 10-mile backup. It is a mess out here right now. It is a total mess. Uh, We're looking at Highway 70 right now. Highway 70. 46,000 extra cars and trucks now have to use Highway 70. The traffic gridlock is expected to continue for a couple of weeks until the water recedes enough to reopen Highway 40. That traffic will be a hassle, but the more serious problem is with about 50 propane tanks that are floating in the Mississippi in South St. Louis. The tanks are being held in place only by the pipes that feed gas to them. Divers are trying to release small amounts of propane to relieve pressure on the valves. But after two explosions last night, officials aren't taking chances. Police and National Guard today doubled the evacuation area around the plant where the tanks are floating. That's Kathy Lohr of NPR reporting 25 years ago. Drive out in that area now, Paul Shankman, and it's hard to believe that there was ever a drop of water in that Chesterfield Valley. Yeah, it's um, a little scary, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> frankly. I don't know enough about uh, about uh, levee systems and so forth to know just how sturdy that is, but hopefully for all those folks that went ahead and built out there, it is, although at least it's not housing. It's, you know, big box stores mostly, but... If that ever goes again, I mean, the damage is going to be astounding. And I suppose at some point we all end up paying for it through insurance rates or, you know, what have you. There was a friend of mine who had a property out there, a warehouse, and he went out uh, by boat at one point to check and see, you know, what was left of the place. And he had to go in through the second floor window. That's how high the water was. He stepped through the window and there was nothing on the floor of that building except snakes. It was like something out of Indiana Jones. The snakes had sought high ground and found it in his building. Mary, how were you reporting or editing these stories back in the day? Oh, as they came in. I mean, at the time I was at the Post-Dispatch, they had reporters out everywhere, photographers out everywhere. And it was, and I I, I hate to say that, say this but we were inundated with mm-hmm. the with the news coverage as well and, and just trying stories, to, right, and the, yeah. and the, there's a real difference too that I think people need to to think about 25 years ago we didn't have cell phones like we do now and smartphones so keeping in touch with everyone was very very difficult Paul how were you reporting it 
Well, I was the I-55 guy. Uh, so I was mostly up and down Interstate 55, Festus, Crystal City, St. Jen, uh, up and down that way for weeks on end, it seemed like, um, which was great in the sense that you got to know the people. But also it was hard to you know, come up with something new every day because at some point, except for when propane tanks break loose or something like yeah. that, it's kind of the same story over and over again. Uh, for us as reporters. And so you're trying to find something new and, and uh, find somebody new to talk to. Uh, if nothing else, just to quit burdening them. I remember mm-hmm. the pastor, again, speaking of the Baptist church on there. I think it was Pastor Adams, as I recall. Great guy. Uh, but he was our go-to guy when we couldn't find anybody else mm-hmm. to talk to because he was always willing to talk to us, have us come in. I think they had a shelter or something going there. They'd come in and have some food or coffee or whatever. But uh, I, I remember that. The other thing I remember, too, and I'm sure everybody here had this experience, is that people from out of town just assumed the whole city was flooded. Mm. And, exactly. uh, you know, obviously it was, you know, in some select areas. It was big where it happened, and a lot of it was farmland too. Uh, but uh, there was that phenomenon as well. And, and we traveled by helicopter back in the day and uh, to get that perspective. And I remember clearly going over that farmland and seeing the bloated bodies of horse and cows and stuff like that that were – Thing, animals like that that were affected. Yeah, and I, what Mary said a moment ago reminded me of that uh, live shot that uh, Dennis Riggs, our colleague, did at Channel 2 where he was in his hip waders up to his hips, I guess, and standing next to a payphone because there were yeah. no cell phones yeah. back there and picked it up. I doubt it was working. Well, we have to say a lot of people made fun of Dennis. As, as, as well <laughs> as he reported the story in those waders, he was always in those waders up to his chest telling people, don't go near the water. It's toxic. <laughs> it's, well, I don't make fun of Dennis now because he's a client of mine. Not that I mean. Well, and you know, that's a really good point. The flood water, if you're not there, it doesn't really seem like it could be that bad. But when you're there and you smell it and see it, it is just the most atrocious concoction that you could ever be around. And it's it's got these colors, too, that you're not familiar with in water. I mean, it's uh, you know, yellows and greens and things from the fertilizer and, and whatever that's that's run off. We have uh, joining us now for a couple of minutes uh, Dave Bussey, who is the Chief of Engineering and Construction Division for the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, Dave, thanks for spending a little time with us. No problem. I'd like to ask you what I asked the folks in the studio here at the very beginning. What is your most vivid memory of uh, that summer? Uh, my most vivid memory of that summer was it was all summer long. It was just the pure duration of that event, which was so much different than anything we've experienced before or after. And what was the Army Corps doing? I mean, it was almost – you certainly couldn't stop anything, and the levees were, were uh, being breached all over the place. What could the Corps do? Well, the Corps actually did quite a bit. Um, They operated the system that was in place. And um, we have many reservoirs um, that held back a great deal of water during the flood. Otherwise, the crest would have been even higher. But on top of that, they were helping people with their levees. And I think one of the things people sometimes forget is that while it looks like there's a bunch of levees that were all put up separately, um, they are part of a greater system. And when we talked about those agricultural levees overtopping, and I just heard that, um, that was as by design, meaning the urban protection projects, the projects that were protecting uh, St. Louis, Wood River, East St. Louis, uh, were built at 
54 foot high on the St. Louis gauge, and the lower le- the levees downstream, for example, Columbia that uh, did breach. The intent all along was for that to breach before it endangered St. Louis or East St. Louis or Wood River. Uh, much like we had in 2011 on the lower river, and they use the term room for the river, um, the system is there for those agricultural levees to overtop before they would endanger the major urban protection projects. What kind of shape are we in now? The Post-Dispatch this morning uh, seemed to uh, suggest that uh, not much has changed, and that may not be a good thing. Um, I would say um, several things have changed for the positive, and several things have not changed, which we can talk about later. But the, the positive things are, I think everyone is more aware of their flood risk. Um, given that previously our greatest flood was in 1973, and it was six feet below where we were in 93, and that we had these massive levees, and there were people that lived behind levees that sometimes didn't even know they had a flood risk. I think we as the Corps and, and the community as a whole are trying to communicate there's always a risk. There are no perfect levees, um, and there's always a bigger flood. I can't tell you when that bigger flood will occur, but we know it can. So I think there's a better awareness. And then on the on a more positive side, um, both the city of St. Louis and also the Metro East levees that are protecting uh, urban areas all saw in 93 that their levees or, or flood walls were not as good as they would have hoped they should have been. So they went out and raised money, especially on the Metro East side, where the Flood Protection District raised the sales tax, and they have been improving their levy. And I, and I was clear not to say raising their levies. <laughs> they were making them stronger mm-hmm. um, so that if we were or when we have another 93 or higher, that those levies would be stronger than they were in 93. There were some um, tense moments in 93. Uh, mostly because of the duration of how long water was on those levees. And I think everyone saw the need to strengthen those. And also, I think based on 93 and then the Katrina episode, um, we also saw the need for communities to do good evacuation planning um, so that people understand bad things can happen. So that part has been good. Uh, The things that really haven't changed a lot, I would say would be a desire by a lot of community, society in general, um, to look to levees to solve um, their flooding problem. Um, and, and those are society questions. Those aren't really questions for the core. The core implements what Congress and the president passes. You know, Dave, one of the things that, that occurred to me in getting ready for this program is if we had the same amount of snow melt and the same amount of rain that we had in 93, would the flood be even worse because we have so much more asphalt and concrete down there now that's going to send that water into the storm sewers and into the rivers? Um, there's a couple things on that. One, I don't think I would worry about the snow melt if it happened at the same time. Because as you remember, Don, the the flood <laughs> crusted in on August first. So most of that snow melt uh, was long into the Gulf 
um, but it did prime the pump. Um, I've heard the argument about increased um, asphalt and new buildings. Um, that plays a much bigger, it has a much bigger impact on small areas. If you were in a small town and you increased the amount of asphalt, um, it would increase flooding there. But on a scale that we would have in St. Louis, while there is increased asphalt, and I would say, yes, it would increase it some, but pretty small because most of the land where water fell is still farmland. Um, there's not a lot of cities if you look at it. You, you think of St. Louis, but St. Louis is a, uh, just a little blip on where the rain fell. Most of it up was up in Iowa, Kansas, out in Missouri farmland. But I think the time of the year also has a lot to do with how high the river will go on a certain flow. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into that. We were talking earlier, Dave Bussey, about the uh, Monarch Levee breached uh, uh, 25 years ago to this day. Um, a lot of people ever since have wondered why folks rebuilt out there. And, and what's your thought about that? I mean, it, was it a, a smart thing to do? Is, is there an ongoing danger out in Chesterfield Valley? Um, I'll take the easy one first. There is an ongoing risk. There's always a risk. I think even the people that maintain that levy will tell you that there's a risk, and they were trying to uh, minimize it. Um, As a federal employee, as a Corps of Engineer employee, I can not take a stand on if that was wise or unwise. Um, That's a decision for Congress and the president to make. I'm just wondering if that same level of flooding is still considered a 500-year event, given all the concern we have about uh, the weather conditions these days. Well, that's a good that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I've heard it, it was a 500-year flood, but at St. Louis, we're estimating it closer to be about a 350-year flood. And but your question is still valid. Do we still think it's a 350-year flood? Um, after the 93 flood, uh, we ran all the data uh, using accepted methods within academia, um, international, and uh, USGS. And we came up with we still think it's valid uh, right now. What, we, what I would tell you we don't know is will it be valid 20 years from now? Um, Right now, we have seen a general trend in increasing precipitation. It's been occurring for a little over a century. We've also noticed that the precip comes down in more burst in a shorter period of time, which gives you more runoff. But as of today, I would say that number is probably pretty good. But if that trend continues where precipitation continues to increase, runoff continues to increase, um, I would expect that that number would change. Um, the course policy is traditionally to relook at this after e- at least every major flood, if not sooner. Um, I think I was on this on this <laughs> very radio cast uh, at the 25th anniversary, and we talked about there would probably be a need to relook at it. Um, pers- professionally, I think it will change some at the upper end. 
But given that 93 was so unusual, it's still six feet higher than the second highest that's ever occurred. It still has more days above 40 feet, which I would consider a pretty major flood, than the rest of the time in St. Louis combined. Um, so it was not only unusual from a height perspective, six feet over the second highest, but also in duration, that it just stayed above 40 feet for so long. Dave, I I know your time is limited. I have one other question, though, relating to the 500-year flood. If I remember correctly, back in the early 70s, there were two 100-year floods back-to-back, which means that these things can happen like that. Oh, the... You could get two hundred year flood two one hundred year floods back to back without question. It's it's a chance it's a one in one hundred chance it could occur could occur in any given year. But I would tell you sometimes those numbers get thrown around a lot. Um, for example, the second highest flood we've ever had by height was nineteen seventy three, and that's estimated to be about a seventy five year flood. So while I've been alive other than 1993, at St. Louis, we have not had a 100-year flood other than 1993. Even 73, which was second highest, was considered to be less than that. Yeah. Now, maybe on the Missouri or further up on the Upper Miss, um, they could occur. But if we're talking about St. Louis, we've only had one flood in my lifetime that's been above 100 year, and that's 1993. Well, we do know that there will be more floods. Whether they're 500-year floods, 100-year floods, or 75-year floods, we're going to get more of them. Dave Bussey, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know you're a very busy guy. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think of what uh, Mr. Bussey had to say? Well, it just reminds me uh, that floods are one of those disasters that at least you see is coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's not that much you can do about it if it's as bad as it was, but I remember – uh, it was the 4th of July weekend that that summer, and we were down on the riverfront overlook covering what was back then the VP Fair. And after the fireworks show and the whole thing was over, I said to my boss, who was, happened to be standing there, what do you think we're going to cover now that all this is over? And he took a long look, a, a one look at the river and pointed at it, and he goes, with that. Mm-hmm. And he was right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a break now. We have a number of people calling in and want to get in on the conversation. We'll do that in just a moment. We're remembering the Great Flood of 1993. Uh, give us a call if you have a recollection you'd like to share with us. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. Or if you prefer to go the tweet route, it's STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation about the flood of 93 with, um, with um, 
Mary Leonard of St. Louis Public Radio, Paul Shankman, owner of Paul Shankman Productions, and Bill Greenblatt, uh, photographers for United Press International. Mary, let me come back to you because you've been spending a lot of time on the Valmeyer story, the relocated uh, town, if you will. Uh, bring us up to speed on the Valmeyer story. Well, Valmeyer still is a case study in terms of what happens after a major flood like this. Uh, the entire village relocated up the bluffs, up to the top of the bluffs, and to get out of the the floodplain. And, you know, it's remarkable, really. It was a town of a uh, village of about 900 people, and they Together, the residents there banded together. They bought land, and they moved up to the top of the bluffs. And, you know, 20 years later, go to Valmeyer, you don't even see any sign that there was an old Valmeyer, really, mm-hmm. because so many of the old structures were bought by FEMA and torn down. It's almost impossible when you're in the old village to even get a sense of there used to be a village here. Mm-hmm. But the new village up on on top of the bluffs, it's like a planned community. It's uh, everything was built in the, you know, ninety five um, to even some current sure. con- construction. Now there's about twelve hundred people live there. It's a nice village, um, but they have not forgotten the twenty fifth uh, anniversary. A, a little bit of a silver lining to that uh, awful story of twenty five years ago. It was tough on those people, though. Sure. I mean, they were sandbagging for weeks, um, trying to save their village because, as you point out, you knew the flood was coming, and they thought the levees would hold because the levees had held for fifty years. Mm-hmm. And they sandbagged for weeks and weeks and weeks, but when the breach occurred north of north of them in Columbia. They knew the water was coming. I, I mentioned Kathy Lohr of NPR in a piece that she did 25 years ago. Uh, here's how she reported the Valmeyer story back then. Whether Valmeyer can be brought back to life is the question now. Not much is going on in the town anymore. The post office has moved to Waterloo, about 10 miles away. The barber's there, too. The local bank is operating out of a place called Dreamland Palace, an old restaurant and dance hall about five miles away in Foster Pond. Valmeyer's residents are staying with relatives or friends, or they found shelter in other small towns nearby. Without basic services like water and electricity, the mayor says it's been hard on everyone. You know, these people have been put out of their homes. A lot of them are in temporary shelters. A lot of them have no idea where their belongings are, and their families are split apart, and they're looking for some type of order in their life, and they can't find it here at this point. A report by Kathy Lohr of NPR of 25 years ago during the flood of 93, which we are talking about on this program today. One of the very saddest stories, out of many sad stories, uh, Bill Greenblatt, I'll turn to you, Greenblatt, I should say, and that was the uh, awful tragedy at Cliff Cave Park where these youngsters went in incredibly during uh, this period to explore the cave and uh, never came out. What's, What's your recollection of that story? Well, you know, those kids uh, were hiking and went in, and uh, by the time we got down there, or most of the media, they had all, that was all cordoned off, and uh, we couldn't get in to see anything. It was all flooded, but uh, it was just a big police presence and a terrible tragedy. A a lot of of criticism for the fact that that happened, because it happened during the time of this flooding. Who would go in, reminiscent of the the thing we just went through in Asia with those kids. Paul, do you have any recollection of that story? I wasn't on that one. I just remember, you know, how awful it was. 
Uh, but uh, And I was surprised when I saw in the paper, I guess it was yesterday, and I think you mentioned at the top of the show, that 50 people died yeah. as a result of the flood. I didn't remember that the number was that high. I suppose in some respects it's surprising it wasn't higher, but... Well, I, I'm not sure the 50 people were all no, in 50 this were area. throughout. Right. Was, no, throughout. In the ninth exactly. stage. Yeah. But, but in Missouri, the, the flood dust, I think it was like 27 people afterward they attributed to the flood, mm-hmm. some directly and some indirectly. And that tragedy that you're talking about at the, at the cave mm-hmm. was a, a significant portion of the casualties. A number of the people that are included in that casualty number are people who were driving on areas where uh, flash flooding occurred. And so I think one of the things we've seen since 93 is that there are many more alerts warning people of flooding and flash flooding to to prevent that kind of Well, the flash flooding, which, which covers a dip in the road, that's what happens. People think the road is level and they drive through it and suddenly they're 12 feet uh, un- underwater. Okay, one of the things that I remember that I just wanted to get your take on, you know, the River de Pere is more, never more than a trickle. Often you don't see any water in there at all. But uh, don't you remember how deep that was? And it went over the banks and was up to the windowsills on uh, houses on either side of that River de Pere. Incredible. Well, they closed Borgenford uh, because the water had reached the street there. But most of the damage was down at Alabama yeah, when an uh, MSG pumping station quit. And um, I was standing in a car wash watching this water, wall of water coming down. And down there, uh, bars and restaurants and things like that sure. were flooded. Well, the river water was so high that it had no place to go, so it pushed up the river to pair. It was going in the opposite direction than right. it normally would. That, that's so true. It was the tributaries that were yeah. causing so much of yeah. the inland um, flooding. And that's why I think people had this perception that the whole area was underwater mm-hmm. because of the Mississippi and the Missouri. But in fact, some of that flooding was due to the tributaries. Yeah, it backed up uh, first into the Canteen Creek. And that's what took out Lee made down there. Well, I think you may recall, I think it was Channel 2 that put out a poster that had those two satellite photos exactly. before and, and during. And it, that really made you think about it when you saw just how swollen all those rivers were and, and everything else that showed up on that map. That was a lot of water. A lot of water. Let's take some calls. Uh, we'll start with Ron. He's been waiting the longest. We thank you for your patience, Ron. You're on the air. Hey, I wanted to give a shout-out to the Missouri National Guard. Uh, I was a commander of B Company, 1138th Engineer Battalion, 35th Engineer Brigade, and we worked the last three weeks of the flood of 93, so we worked all the way from Bell Fountain Neighbors to Crystal City. And the, one of the last things we did was we reinforced the, level, the levee in Crystal City, which we believed helped uh, save Crystal City from, uh, no, excuse me, Kimswick from, from going under. And so uh, the, the Missouri National Guard across the entire state did a, a great job. Thank you, Ron, for your, for your call. And yeah, the National Guard was very busy and did a lot of real good work at that time. You know, I think the flood wall, Bill, you might remember this, uh, in St. Louis, protecting St. Louis, was put up in the in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And had that not been put up at the time, downtown would have been underwater. Yeah, I remember a lot of the cities in Illinois uh, and downstream from St. Louis had criticized St. Louis because of the yeah. flood wall. Yeah. And that the water was going into their Squeezed areas. It. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, let's take another call. Uh, Sandra is calling from St. Genevieve. Sandra, thank you for waiting. Go ahead. Good afternoon, Don. I um, have. I just am very excited that you're addressing this topic on your show today, and wanted to um, 
put in uh, just a note about St. Genevieve, and in particular with your St. Louis area listeners, there were thousands of volunteers and the National Guard um, from St. Louis area and across the state. Really, people came from around the world to help sandbag in St. Genevieve. And as you may recall, um, of course, um, St. Genevieve um, was saved, and uh, a big part of that emphasis were the irreplaceable historic homes and properties that are here that date to the 1700s. And I thought your audience might be excited to know that um, last week we hosted representatives from the National Park Service and some of those very homes, notably the Amaro House, which is along St. Mary's Road, and properties adjacent to that, such as the Beckett Rabot House and others, uh, will be at the heart of a future National Park Historic Site. And um, so that is thrilling uh, for us here in St. Genevieve that not only were those um, historic properties able to be saved during the August uh, 93 flood, but also that they will now be um, recognized and preserved in a National Park historic site. And so I wanted to um, put a plug in that um, St. Genevieve, our crest was on August 6, 1993 at 49.67 feet. And um, so our 25th anniversary is coming up. Um, and the weekend after the anniversary happens to be our largest festival of the year, which is the St. Genevieve Jure de Fête. So right, we hope that Sandra, you've got a lot going on, and we've got l- not too much time. But uh, we understand what's going on in St. Genevieve, and uh, as always, it's going to be a great time in a great town. Thank you so much for your call. You know, she mentions the sandbaggers, uh, and, and what a tremendous job sandbaggers did the community coming together during that time i'm sure you took more than one picture of oh, people yeah, a lot of pictures in front of the uh, stoplight in in crystal city with uh, dick gephardt filling sandbags and yeah. as paul points out it was so hot yeah. that was one like a record setting uh, heat that july yeah it was it was just miserable but you know one of the things too that that uh, sticks out in my mind is that there's always this sort of bromide about you know, neighbors helping neighbors, and only here in the Midwest would that happen. I can't think of too many places where that wouldn't happen. Thank goodness they all showed up, yep. and it was amazing, you know, how much uh, they they put in, to, you know, for places that had no connection to them except that they saw on the news that people needed help. I think I think that would happen just about And they anywhere. still do. And that, you know, as you point out, we still have floods. They're not as big, thank heavens, but we have flooding a lot, and people still show up, and I think that's just remarkable. We have an, uh, an email here from uh, Steve who writes, One afternoon as I was watching the TV news, I saw a couple of St. Louis Blues players helping with the sandbagging in the Lee Bay area, not far from where I lived in 93. I was jolted out of a feeling of helplessness by a couple of guys from Canada, Nelson Emerson and Kelly Chase. The next day I went down by the old Lee May Bank headquarters and pitched in for hours. I filled and stacked sandbags in the July or August heat. In spite of the ultimate failure of our massive effort, I have always been proud of that effort. I also wish to thank Chase and Emerson for goading me into action that summer. That's kind of representative of the way people uh, people were brought into uh, service during that time. Go back to the phones. Another thought from you guys before I go back? Okay, let's let's go to uh, uh, Anna, I guess it is, in St. Louis. Uh, Anna, go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, the winter before the summer of 93, I was in Mount Shasta, California, 
and there was a huge snowstorm that started on Christmas Day, dumping two feet every day for several days. We ended up with 10 to 15 feet of snow in the town of Mount Shasta, and all across the northwest there were huge snowstorms that were piling up snow up north as we went into the into that part of the year. In the summertime, in the springtime in Mount Shasta, a lot of rain came and washed um, both rain and snow melt, created huge flooding in Sacramento and Russian rivers. We left Mount Shasta in mid-July and drove back to St. Louis, and by that time the snows up in Minnesota and up north in North Dakota and all those places that feed the, both the Mississippi and the Missouri River um, were starting to melt down and, and the rivers were filling when we got to um, Kansas City, we actually saw the crest of the flood on the Missouri River. When we got to Boonville, the water was rising, and we looked over a bridge and saw um, uh, all kinds of cars and tanks and all kinds of polluting things and animals floating down the river. My son and I actually um, stopped in a park and watched as water was coming up a, a road, and we rescued probably 100 or more uh, earthworms that were seeking seeking dry land. And when we got back to St. Louis, all we could do after all of that was just to watch the news and take care of our own business because we had a house to get ready for somebody to move into. But it was um, it was a, a really big deal for that whole summer, and I agree with you that the heat was intense, and I really admire all the people that were able to help and all the courage of the people that had to go through that personally. Uh, let me stop you there, Anna. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we are running short of time. But uh, we appreciate your recollections. And, uh, yeah, quite a summer it was. It was a big deal, no question about it. But thank you for the call. And it went on. I mean, as a, as a story, it went on for a long time. Oh, 100 days. After the, after the water went down. Sure. I mean, uh, it, it takes a long time to recover from any sort of disaster. Mm-hmm. But flooding has got to be right up there near the top because it just does so much damage. And and I think people sometimes forget there was a second round of flooding that came in. Mm -hmm. For example, in Valmire, they thought they were going to be able to rebuild the town. Mm -hmm. But another round of flooding came in, I think it was in August, September. So they had the initial water go down, they got out, they started working on their houses, and then the river came back again. And I think that, you know, we we sometimes tend to forget that... Mm -hmm. It did go on for a very, very long time. Yeah. You know, Anna and others have commented on, on the people who came to uh, to assist during these uh, trying times. But, Paul, you did a piece, and we have a clip from it. I'll ask you to set it up, but it, it really speaks to the, the resolve and the resignation at the same time. It yeah. does, and, and the fact that we had mentioned before that a lot of the people who were affected by this were farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I got off of I-55 for <laughs> a special that we did, uh, an hour-long special in the height of all of this. And uh, the assignment that I had was to go and spend an entire day with a farm family that was under threat of water. And so we found the uh, the Lindhorst family just on the other side of the J.B. Bridge in the Columbia Bottoms over there. And uh, we did a, a long piece. This is just about a one-minute uh, section of the last part of it. The, the radio won't do it justice because the pictures are, are beautiful in one sense and also sort of arresting and alarming. And in other senses, you see the water starting to creep in across their fields and they're, you know, sitting there wondering what, what to do. Um, but, uh, it, you know, you meet such amazing people when you go out on these stories, uh, the people helping out that we've mentioned, but also the people going through it and uh, their resolve, as you mentioned. And I yeah. thought that this clip sort of uh, spoke to that as it comes to the end of it. You can hear the strength of, uh, of these folks. 
The Lindhorsts have every piece of farm equipment imaginable, but they have no tool, no machinery capable of fixing this. A lifetime of work is at risk from what really isn't even a once-in-a-lifetime event. As evening falls, the county fair seems a good place to forget the bad that surrounds them. Tomorrow could bring ruin, but this day will end like it began, with the sun shimmering across fields that should be full instead of fallow. You know, you've got to keep going some way or another, so if you let yourself get down too far, and then it might make matters worse. You know what they always tell me? Where you lose it, that's where you find it. And that is so. If you lose your pocket knife, you're going to find it where you lost it. So you just go back the next year and raise another crop. See, you might find it all then, see? Uh, yeah, that, that was one of my, my favorite stories of, of the flood. Uh, just because of the resolve that these folks had that they're going to stay and defend the land. You know, it was, I don't know how many years ago now, but in, in the piece, one of the people that we talked to was a boy who was 10 years old at the time, the youngest member of the family, and uh, I ran into him. <laughs> so I obviously would have recognized him, but he was a grown man with children, I think, at that point. But he, he said that the family really enjoyed being in the piece, which really touched me because you always feel like you're sort of imposing on these people when you when you come in and do it. And they were a- absolutely wonderful to work with that day. And we spent all day with them. I'm sure they were ready to get rid of us by the end of the day. Uh, but that's always nice to hear, too. Yeah. Bill, did you by any chance get down to the uh, to Illinois, Prairie de Rocher, and places like that? I did, just for yeah. a day or two. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that story with regard to how they had to, to, to uh, breach the levee on purpose yes. in order to— Tell what you recall. I, I don't remember a yeah. lot about that. I just remember that they, they did breach the levee. And they caused the water to go around the town of Prairie de Rocher right. as opposed to uh, flooding right. it, which like was, was imminent. A, yeah, they did that down at Poplar Bluff a few years ago, too, by uh, exploding some levees. Yeah. Uh, they, they took a real risk when they did that. Absolutely. And, and I remember just reading about it here recently because it's south of Valmire. As the water kept on down the floodplain, that that historic village, uh, Prairie de Rocher, was in great danger, mm-hmm. and so they took a shot, and they and they basically breached a levee and and diverted the water, and they saved that the historic buildings there. And I think I, I may be remembering this wrong, and if I do, I apologize to the folks in Rocher, as they call it down there, as I learned, <laughs> is that at one point I think they had to, to bag all these sandbags, and they had moved it to. I don't know if it was a cave or a quarry or something where it was really cool inside, which I thought was ingenious yeah. given how hot it was. And they were filling all the sandbags in there and then taking them by truck down. They did that in Valmire. Was that where it was? Yes. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking yes. of Valmire. You're thinking of Rock City. It's called Rock City ah. now. Yes. I remember at Prairie de Rocher, the media, of course, were coming in, in helicopters in the, by droves. And the water was so high that they waved the helicopters away because they thought the downwash from the helicopters would cause the water to breach uh, the levee. Okay, let's go back to the uh, speaking of blowing up levees. I think Roger has a story to uh, make a point here. Go ahead, Roger. You're on the air. Okay, thanks. Well, this Cody uh, Rocher and the locals there do call it Rocher because uh, that's where my folks are from. And so 
I know when that happened, there was a creek coming down from the hills above Rotier, which is just a little bit upstream and across the Mississippi River from St. Genevieve. But this creek came down out of the hills, and then on either side of the creek to the Mississippi River were these levees. And so the river had gone up into uh, that creek, and it was the levee on the upside. Again, the, the water that flowed down and had uh, inundated Waymire was flowing inside of the main levee, heading straight for Rocher. And what they did was blew up the upstream levee to allow the water to seep in from uh, the creek side and inundate that part of the floodplain and gradually moved up and then met the oncoming water uh, rushing downstream from Waymire. But what was incredible about it was their decision to do that. And, of course, it was filled with risk that saved that town. That flood water coming down from Valmire would have just blown through both of those creek levees like they were nothing. And I just that's an incredible part of the whole story. Roger, yes, it is, uh, needless to say. There was another uh, breach, uh, but of a different sort, up in uh, the Quincy area, in which a fellow who wanted to isolate his wife while he was partying uh, blew a levee, and um, he, he's, he, he was sentenced to life in prison for doing that. Recall that story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do. I remember how astounding it was in the midst of all this with everybody trying to save that somebody would do that, and then for such an insane reason. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Another visual that I have, Bill, and, and, and all of you here is, is the, uh, the situation out in Gumbo at the airport, the Spirit Airport out there with planes bobbing around in the water like corks. Were you out there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Took a rowboat because it, was, it wasn't really that deep but because uh, there, there was corn growing and you had to, to row and use small yeah. motors and things like that to get uh, out there. So, yeah. More than, more than one reporter was in a boat uh, during the course of that summer. Well, Let's, I guess the iconic image that of the flood is the Gummersheimer house floating down the river. We talked about that before we went on the air, and the fact that the water came in the front door, went out the back, and took the uh, took the house with it. That was an incredible story. Mm-hmm. I went back there a year later to do a story on Virgil, and um, the all that was left of that property was sand and silt. The house obviously was long gone, but it looked it. It reminded me of what Bikini Atoll might have been like when they tested the first atomic bomb. It was just sand. There was nothing. No no foliage at all. Anyway, another call here. Anne in St. Louis, uh, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I was moving into a new house along the River De Pere right at the time that that second batch of, of the flood came. And... Uh, my house literally backs up to the River De Pere, and everyone was warning me about moving there. And yet, I'm way up north near the Metrolink station, and just south of me, it was just so flooded that, uh, you know, people had to move out. So I, I had some people over, and one man walked back to my fence, and he looked down at the water, <laughs> which was way down where I am, and he said, oh, wow, waterfront property. <laughs> you know, I think that's a point that is important for people to remember, too. There were places that flooded, that hadn't flooded for decades. And, you know, I think sometimes people look at people during the flood and they say, well, well they live on the river. What do you expect? Mm-hmm. 
And that was the point, I think, that I came away with, is so many folks had lived in communities. In, in Valmire, for example, you couldn't even see the river from the, the, the old village. It was, it, you couldn't even see it. So, and they had the levee system. When some of these villages and communities flooded, it, it was uh, basically hadn't been, it hadn't happened for 50, 60 years. And yet I imagine a lot of them went back. They often do, and yep. most most of the time they do. I think you have time for one more quick call. This will bring us into uh, 2018. David in St. Louis, you're on the air. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead, David. Well, thanks. I, um, I'm, I'm remembering not only the 93 flood, but I, I'm not sure if it was uh, 2014 or 15 when the Missouri River flooded. And it, the, that later flood was directly tied to global warming. The... Uh, Mountains in uh, in the upper Missouri, up in Montana and Wyoming and whatnot, the snows melted so fast, and every snow that followed that spring melted within hours. And so there was a, a huge flood that not only endangered the two nuclear power plants near uh, uh, Omaha, but that it flooded the entire Missouri River. So the politicians that are ignoring and denying global warming are putting us at risk. And I'm uh, very concerned that, uh, that this chatter, this rhetoric that uh, global warming is a hoax, they're, they're not only lying about uh, the, the uh, you know, protecting polluters is what these politicians are doing, and uh, global warming is real, and it's putting us at risk to ignore it. David, thank you so much for the call. Global warming had to come up during this conversation, don't you think? Very f- limited time left. Any final thought very quickly, Mary Leonard? Well, on Thursday we have a piece um, that I did on Valmeyer, and I hope people might enjoy listening to some of the, the residents talk about 25 years ago and where they are now. Uh, very quickly, Paul, a final thought? Well, we live in a city that's almost surrounded entirely by rivers, so we can expect this will happen again. Hopefully the gentleman from the Corps is right, and it'll be 350 years from now, and it won't be our problem. Hopefully. The thing I take away from the flood is I didn't know, and I don't think anybody knew how big the enormity of this flood was because we do flood all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, just going in West Alton and watching caskets float down the river were uh, incredible time. I always remember. Bill Greenblatt, thank you for being with us. Paul Shankman, Mary Lander, thank you all so much for helping us remember 1993. You can find more flood-related stories on a special section of our website. 25 years later, remembering the great flood of 93, just go to stlpublicradio.org. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.